Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning. I'd like to read to you verses 24 through 31. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Lord, uh, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this morning we have the joy of looking at the sixth day. It's a a culmination of the rest of the days of creation. It's a pinnacle. It's um, a crown of your creation. And we look forward to the truths that come forth from this text Thank you, Father, for your word, for we'd have no way to know of what took place except by by your divine revelation. And so we pray, God, that you'd open uh, this up to us today, that you'd give clarity of thought, and, Father, that you'd give clarity of speech according to your will and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been doing a lot of reading uh, lately, and uh, especially during this past week, I've been doing some interesting reading, and today's sermon, it's going to be kind of peppered with some thoughts that I picked up from the reading that I've done uh, together with the text that we've just looked at. And we're going to be looking at day six, and I'll do my best to exposit what the meanings are in the text that we read, but I also want to make some comments. On Thursday morning, the massive SpaceX rocket Starship, right? Two times the, as powerful as the rockets used to send people to the moon suffered from what SpaceX team called a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. <laughs> and I saw that, and it just fits so well with what I'd been reading and studying all week long. It immediately caused me to think of the world that we live in, and that's an apt description There's a rapid, unscheduled disassembly, except for Christians, 
it's not unscheduled. <laughs> it's totally scheduled. And you see, God knows all that he has decreed, and he's decreed all things to take place. We've been studying this in, in our Bible study, in men and women's Bible study. So there's nothing that's unscheduled. Nothing at all. From a sparrow falling to the hair that we no longer have on our head. He knows, right? And it will all come to pass just as he planned it to come to pass. The disassembly we are witnessing and the emotional response to it, which it often brings about within us, is merely because we're considering that too much from our own personal perspective. And we need to look at it from God's perspective, which will give us much more peace. We'll be able to uh, be able to take into consideration the fact that though we might not understand it, there is one that understands everything that's taking place. So before we go to a straight exposition of the text in Genesis 1, 24 through 31, and everything that took place on the sixth day, I'd like to share some thoughts from my reading through the week in preparation for today. And the first thought is that there is a crisis of purpose. There is a crisis of purpose. In verse 26 of Genesis 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. When we look at that verse, in a straightforward way, it's abundantly clear from the text that God purposed to do something. It presupposes that there was thought in the preparation of the earth for man and then the creation of man. There was premeditation on the part of God to do something very specific. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's a statement of purpose. And the Godhead had a conversation and decided within their triunity as seen by let us make man in our image, that there was within the Trinity an agreement arrived at, and then they decided, and now we see the fruition of that decision in the making of man. They enacted their purpose. There is purpose in the origin of mankind. Now right here, at this very point, this statement in Genesis 1.26, there's a link with the description of what's happening in the world today, a rapid, unscheduled disassembly, if you will. There is within the world, and especially our Western culture, a complete disconnect and a wholehearted denial of the idea of divine creation, right? That is the prevailing viewpoint of the people in Western culture. And without divine creation, what is left is a huge crisis of purpose. Because without God, everything that is came about by sheer chance. It's a cosmic accident, if you will. But that is the presupposition that most people in the West are operating under. The very first words of the Bible compel us to think of purpose. In the beginning, God created this world and everything in it. It didn't come about by an accident, according to the Bible. A mere cosmic mistake. It was intentionally created 
And there was an ordered, intelligent decision and then action that carried out the decision to create. That's purpose. But the world that we live in would rather believe everything that now is came about by chance. And because it will not concede to a divine origin, it's in the grips of a huge crisis of purpose. (laughs) Philosophers write about it, how we're the product of blind forces of chance without a trace of purpose and And without purpose, there is no hope. We're aimless, rudderless, if you will. Therefore, life is without purpose. The world is without purpose. History is going nowhere without purpose. The universe is without purpose. And what is the inevitable end of the presupposition that everything came about by chance? The reigning worldview of the people around us today The origin of everything came about by an impersonal accident of chance for no particular reason. This leads to despair. There is no other end point in that kind of thinking. For anyone who actually takes a quiet moment to consider it, you will come up with despair. Shakespeare, who I'm not really familiar with, but most of us have heard this statement by Shakespeare, it's in Hamlet, and it says, to be or not to be, that is the question. But did you ever read beyond that? Because the rest of it is very interesting. He says, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the minds to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles... And by opposing, end them to die to sleep. No more. And by a sleep to say, we end. Suicide. This is his discovery, folks. The heartache and the thousand natural shocks, he writes, that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation. Devotedly, And devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep. You see, without purpose, without hope, without God, is despair. It's hopelessness. This is where the philosophy that does not allow for a divine creation leads to, actually. The hopelessness and despair. But that's where the worldview ends if everything began as a mere accident or by chance. If that is so, logically, as Shakespeare and modern philosophers think, it'd be better to end life and be done with all this trouble. I mean, even the Bible says men are born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's a natural outworking of our life. There's trouble. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, the sea of troubles, just end it. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Genesis 1.26 is a beginning, and it began as a result of intelligent decision by an eternal, omniscient person. There is a personal beginning. Who knows what he is doing 
and why he is doing it. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. We have been created with purpose. Whether you believe that or not, whether you accept that or not, this is the truth. This is our existence as human beings. Without God, there is no purpose to life. With God, there is purpose to life. That's maybe why I feel like I just began to live at the age of 19 when I first trusted Christ. I heard the gospel. I felt like everything started in my life at that time. Prior to that, it was just chasing after the wind. So let me read 26 and 27 to you one more time. It says, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to the, our likeness and let them rule over the birds or the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Divine creation brings purpose with it. God created humanity in his image and according to his likeness, and theologians have written a lot about that, a lot about that. And what do these words mean? If you just take it at face value, the fact that God created human beings means that we have been created in the image of God. He says so. He tells us that much. And we therefore have purpose. And the purpose is that we are to reflect that image through our lives. That is the purpose for humanity. We could say that we are created to live up to his image in a very real sense. Man is the crown of God's creation. Do you realize that? In all the creative work that God did in the first five days, it was all preparatory for the creation of man. There was nothing that bore the image of God prior to day six. In fact, all that went before served as preparation for the habitat of man, the creation of the dry land for man to live on, the atmosphere for man to breathe, the vegetation that would serve as food, even the sun, the moon, and the stars that provided signs and seasons. For whom? Surely not the birds. Not any of the vegetation that he created. What are the signs and seasons for? It's for mankind. And surely, God had a purpose in all of this. Everything that God created, he created in preparation for the crown of his creation, mankind. We have intrinsic value in the fact that we have been created in the image and after the likeness of God. Now, the purpose of mankind is to bear that image of our creator, for such have we been created. We are created to reflect his glory. His glory just simply refers to his person. And yet, in Romans 3.23, we read, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, something happened. Sin happened. We're We're going to get to that in chapter 3, okay? We're only in chapter 1 right now. And because of sin, the Bible says that we've missed the mark for which we were created. We have fallen short of the glory of God. 
To fall short is to miss the mark. It's an archery term whereby the arrow that is shot towards a target falls short of the target. It doesn't reach its end goal, the target. And so sin has caused people to fall short of the glory of God, which means we no longer fulfill that for which we were created, to reflect his image. That is our nobility to bear his image and reflect his glory. That's why we can sing songs about ruined man. We're ruined as human beings. We're no longer good for what we've been created for. But, and that's a big but, that has been disallowed by sin. We can't fulfill that without God. And we've fallen from what he has created us to be and to do. And you might say, in keeping with the theme in this long introduction, humanity lost its purpose in life. And so what does humanity do? It goes about trying to gain purpose and create its own purpose. And all I can say is, how's that going? How is that going? In the darkness of life, without God and without hope in the world, people attempt to make their own purpose. They try to gain their happiness, their contentment, from devices that they come up with, from their minds that has been severely damaged through sin and the corruption of sin. How do we understand what being created in the image of God means? There have been a lot of discussions on the topic. Man was created both special and personal. We are unique of all of God's creation. We are the crescendo of all creation. In a real sense, it's a terminus because what follows is the rest of God. R-E-S-T, his taking his rest because his work was completed when he created mankind. And that's on the seventh day. Therefore, we can truly be said that man is the crown of God's creation. The creation of man is special and unlike the rest of God's creative work. Think about this. There's more space given to the description of Adam's creation than any other facet of God's creation account. You can just look at the number of words that are used in the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve. The name Yahweh in 2.7, look over to 2.7, chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We're going to be on this topic for at least another week. There's just so much here. The name Yahweh is used. It says the Lord, or then Yahweh God. Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is a name that denotes God as personal, whereas Elohim is more a designate of power. In Genesis 2.7, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed man. And then it cries out intimacy via the personal touch. Look at what it says in verse 2.7. It says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Formed man from the dust of the ground. He formed us. And then he bends down and he breathes the breath of life into the nostrils. There's intimacy here. There's personality. There's personalness. 
God showed a personal side to his creation, and it is touching. He didn't do that with any of the other creation. And when God created Adam and Eve, he created them individually. This is very interesting. It's unique in his creative work. Everything else, he created and made kinds, plural. Swarms in the ocean, right? Birds in the sky. But when it came to man, he created each one individually. God showed a personal side. Only when it came to the creation of humankind did God create man, Adam, and later the woman, Eve, as a single individual. And we're unique because of that. We're unlike the other animals. There are some likenesses, but we are unique. The image of God, verse 26 He says, in our image we created him. Mankind holds a unique place in God's creative order precisely because God made him in his own image. This means that God made man with remarkable ability to reflect various aspects of God's own nature. Humanity is absolutely distinct from the animal kingdom in this. I know I've just really frustrated PETA people right now. Image and likeness. What do those words mean? Both terms mean something similar, but not identical to that which it represents. Both of them. An image can mean the use of something to represent something else, like a statue. So if somebody were to make a statue of me, that would not be me, but it would be a representation of me a replica of another object. Look over in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. It's a very interesting usage of these terms. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Same two words. It wasn't Adam. It was in his likeness and according to his image. The original readers would read the verse and understand that man was in the image of God and that meant that man is like God and represents God. Jesus Christ is the supreme example of man after the image of God. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where the Greek word icon is used, we're familiar with icons, statues, so forth. Hebrews 1.3 is pretty clear. It says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, of the characteristics of him, his essence, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Okay? So that word nature there is hypostasis. and it means divine essence. Jesus is said to be the perfect expression of, And in so being that perfect expression affirms his own deity as Jesus Christ. It means the substance. He is the exact representation of the substance of God. He reflects the glory of God perfectly. Not so us. We're imperfect, but we are to reflect the glory of God. That's our purpose. Now, We'll return to the image of God in man when we get to 
Genesis chapter 3, and we'll discover how it was marred. What happened at the fall and the corruption of sin? And that, that is a, a marvelous text that we're going to be studying. But until then, let's just look at this image of God that we're supposed to be representing, okay? Because it's similar yet different from God. We're like God in that man has a rational nature. He has a capacity to reason. We have intelligence and to make decisions, volition, and to express affection, emotion. That is part of the image of God, and God exercises all of those characteristics. His ability to reason, his intelligence, and his ability to make a decision he decided to make man, and his ability for affection. He loves his creation. And therefore, man was created with the capacity to know God. We can know God. Animals can't know God. They have intelligence, it's true, but they can't know God. We have the ability also to obey God. We have volition. We choose whether to obey him or disobey him. And we also have the ability to love God, affections. And so that is part of that image of God that we've been created in. So we're like God in that sense. We're also like God because we have a moral nature. God made him without sin and good and with the capacity to know right from wrong and good from evil. Now, animals do not have that capacity either. But we do as men, created in the image and after the likeness of God. That image is unlike God, who is spirit. Man is limited by a physical form. John 4, 24. God is spirit. And when we're like, un, unlike God, because man does not possess divine attributes such as infinite wisdom, infinite power, infinite glory, those are God's characteristics and attributes alone. We don't have those. And we're unlike God and the all-sufficient creator because man is a finite creature, limited both by birth and death. We will be eternal, but we did have a beginning. And we will end this physical life. And we're unlike God, the source of life. Man is a dependent creature. We have been created to depend on our creator. Deriving our life from God, according to Job 33.4. He is our life source. So let's look at verses 24. We're going to backtrack now a little bit and break this Sixth day down a little, a little bit. Verses 24 and 25 talk about the creation of land animals. Now, it says that they were created after their kind. And that phrase is used ten times in Genesis chapter 1. After their kind. Five of them in these two verses, 24 and 25. Five times after their kind. Now, now, in present day, now we understand that there's a genetic code that specifically suits each species. We didn't know that before. Are we catching up with God? Hardly. But we do know a little bit more than we did a few years ago. In the genetics of each species, there are specific information packets as to the specific characteristics of that species. 
It provides information and carries out at least three intrinsic elements that's in every living creature. And I mentioned this before to you. They're self-sustaining. We are self-sustaining in the sense that we feed ourselves and go on living by breathing. And we defend our lives against those who would take it from us. <laughs> okay? And that's true of creatures as well. And all creatures, living creatures, are self-repairing, which means when they're injured, they have the capacity within them because they were created with that capacity to heal. They're also able to rejuvenate themselves by rest and by sleep. Some of us need more rejuvenation. <laughs> Amen. Those of us with small children. And they're self-producing they propagate themselves and through procreation make more of themselves after their kind and only after their kind. You can't get two dogs together and get a cat. Okay? And you can't get an apple tree and get an onion. Things are created after their kind. Creeping things and cattle Domesticated animals are cattle, including sheep and goats and horses and oxen and so forth, those with a closer relationship to mankind. Mammals, okay? And then there's creeping things, and these include all the myriad of insects and bugs and animals that crawl around on the ground, from snakes to squirrels and everything in between. Uh, Henry Morris wrote a book that, uh, on this in Genesis. It's called Genesis. And he says this, quote, Creeping things are the weasels, rodents, possums, shrews, reptiles, amphibians. That list is no, in no sense meant to be complete, but merely general identification is given, since there are nearly 20,000 different species of those kinds of creepy things. <laughs> uh, at least 15,000 lived on the island of Taliabo. And the list would probably include the one million or so species of insects and probably the probably 100,000 or so species of spiders and scorpion. Again, a sure 75,000 of those spiders and scorpions lived on Taliabo. None of these critters are known to be especially endearing or helpful to man, such as what was designated under cattle. Cattle are different. The, the, the mammals, the land mammals, are different. They're, they, they have a different difference to them. The beasts of the field. This designation refers to everything not contained under the other two categories, such as animals of lions and tigers and bears and elephants and dinosaurs, etc., all of which do not fit the idea of domesticated animals such as cattle and sheep and so forth. And God saw that it was good. Is such an important phrase. There were no mutations prior to the fall of man, contrary to contemporary evolutionary theory. It goes against Darwin's postulation that the, there's been a process of natural selection that's taking place over millions of years that allowed for the progress of various species to such an advanced stage as we. God's word says that it was good. It would not allow for such destructive processes to be in place and still call it good. 
no unfit animal, nor one that has not just as it was supposed to be created by God with its own DNA code stamped right in it in the cells of its body so that it recreates right after its own kind. There isn't that progression that is so loudly promoted. DNA put that to rest. They are really late at coming to the game. Now, verse 28 is beautiful. God blessed them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now this blessing was given to mankind. It conferred on man at the beginning and it brings with it the idea of well-being. Blessing means happiness, blessedness, human flourishing. Everything was in place. Nothing was out of place. There was no gender confusion in the creation account. There just wasn't people. And we don't need to be fearful, even though there are loud cries against what the Bible says. It's what the Bible says. And it doesn't say that there's room for hate and animosity towards God's creation, no matter how ruined they may be. Because all of us are ruined sinners. Some of us are saved by grace. In the beginning, God created Adam as a man, and he created Eve as a woman. We're going to be getting into this a little bit more next week. To deny one's gender is basically go against what God has created. It's not against my personal feelings. It has nothing to do with me at all. It has everything to do with the divine creation which God tells us he created. For a man to say that he's really a woman is to go against what God created that person to be. And for a woman to say that she is really a man is to go against what God created that person to be. God's creation of specific gender could not be clearer. I realize by saying that I might be persecuted and maybe even prosecuted in today's world. But you know what? It's not my personal thinking. I am a preacher of the Word of God, and you are believers in the Word of God, and you need to stand with the Word of God. And you need to understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son for the world. All of it. Physically, the man and the woman's complement, they complement one another. Let me lapse into just simple logic here. They complement one another. It's completely in sync with God's next words, his mandate containing a blessing. He says he created them, man and woman created he them, right? They complement one another. And the very next verse says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That would be a nonsensical command if there were not a complementary command. element in the creation of male and female. This is not rocket science, folks. This is just simple understanding of words. No procreation would take place without this element of complementarianism. Two males cannot reproduce. 
two females cannot reproduce. It is not a personal feeling that I have. It's reality. That's all God's word is, is truth, reality, what is most in sync with what is real. Beloved, if you don't have male and female, you can't even plug a socket into the wall. Okay? You get my drift, right? I don't want to go too far there. Our current struggles with personal identity, even to the individual rejection of biological identity, is the direct result of a wholehearted denial of the ideal of divine creation. It's so simple. And yet, when we hear these arguments surrounding all this stuff and are accused of being haters, etc., etc., we get confused. Don't get confused. It's not confusing. You're okay. Just watch your rhetoric. Watch your animosity levels. You have no right to be haters. Not as God's children, ever. You see, if there isn't an idea of divine creation, there is, what I told you at the beginning, a crisis of purpose, a crisis of hope. People no longer know who they have been created to be, or why, or what for. When you leave this, you go out to sea without a rudder. You have no way to steer through life and culture and society. And that's exactly what we see is happening, isn't it, all around us. And we have an answer. We have a rudder. The next time you hear some craziness, go up to them. Brother, I've got a rudder for you. You know? I've got a compass. It's a really special compass. So they can find their way. Man, what a time we've been born in. Maintaining a truth claim of divine creation enables us to answer the catechism question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man. What is man's purpose? Well, the chief end of man or the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we were created. The meaning of enjoying God is broadened out in Psalm 16, 5 through 11. You might want to just jot that down to look up later. I'll read it to you now, but uh, Psalm 16, 5 through 11 kind of helps us to understand what this enjoying God and, and uh, glorifying him uh, means. It says there, Yahweh, the Lord, is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines are fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless Yahweh, who has given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night season, meaning that the counsel comes from the word of God, and that word of God even instructs us in our night season as we sleep. I've set Yahweh always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be moved. Isn't that interesting? He will not be moved from his purpose. I will not be moved. Therefore, my heart's glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also shall rest in hope. In your presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. In the presence of God. 
At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You want happiness? You want human flourishing? You want joy? You want contentment? Get closer to God. He provided all that his creation needed. Food, health, companionship, fellowship with him in the cool of the day. God is not an ogre just waiting to spank us. But rather a loving creator that thrills to bless his people. Look at Genesis 27 through 30. Chapter 1, 27 through 30. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's a biblical ecology. And then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed. He's, He's done it all for us. It's all prepared for us, and it was all prepared for Adam and Eve. You see, no, so interesting. He says, be fruitful and multiply. How can you do that if you don't have male and female? And then he's blessed. He's blessed us. Now, he tells us to subdue and rule over the earth. Rule over the fish of the sea, rule over the birds of the sky, rule over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this was divine mandate for man to have dominion over the earth. Possibly the very first intimation of such dominion is seen in 2.19, where we see God bringing animals to Adam. Again, we'll talk about that next week. He brings animals to Adam because he saw that the man was alone, and that was not good. It's the first time something wasn't good. And he he brings all the animals, land animals, before Adam. And whatever Adam named them, so was its name. That is very godlike. That is very godlike. You see, whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. This is Adam acting in sync with his being created in the image of God. He's reflecting the glory of God by naming those animals. Because God named day and night. He named heaven, he named the earth, and he named the seas. And so man is following after God and glorifying him. And whatever he named them, that was their name. Later, we're going to see Adam receive further responsibility in the garden to keep it and cultivate it in chapter 2 when we get there. At this time, in the beginning, both man and animals were vegetarians. They were vegetarians. We know that this changes after the flood, but at this time, at the beginning, man and animals both, their food source was to be every green herb. God's word says, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed and it will be food for you and every beast of the, of the earth or of the field. And then in verse 31, look at verse 31 for the wrap-up. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. He saw all that he had made, and it was very good. 
This is the clearest refutation to any theory of geological ages where death and decay would have had to taken place. Where such theories say the fossil record was established. This is a refutation of that completely. Because God could not have pronounced everything and all that he had made to be exceptionally or exceedingly good. Because that's what very means. Very good. There could not have been anything in all of creation that was not good or God would be lying. That's why I and very many people believe that the fall of Satan had to take place sometime after Genesis 1.31, but before Genesis 3.1. Because everything was good. If there was a rebellion in heaven, God created the angels. And here it says, everything that God had created was very good. So that's why I basically believe that. And so the sixth literal solar day came to an end. The sixth day the crown of God's creation, after which he rests. And we'll talk about that next week. Well, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for this sixth day that we can look at, we can mull over and meditate upon. And Father, the more we shake that tree, for all the fruit that's contained in those verses, the more we marvel at our creation and your mercy and your graciousness and your love to have created us the way that you have. Forgive us for the many times that we mar that creation, that we do not do that for which we were created, that we stop being that for which we were created to be. Father, we confess that we're sinners all, and that sin causes us much pain, and it causes us not to reflect that glory. Father, we just want to reflect your glory more and more. Father, help us to root out the sin that so easily entangles us and to just press forward, loving you, wanting to represent you to those around us and bringing you much glory even when there's nobody around us. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.